Friends, let me add my welcome to Pastor Mitch's. My name is Adam, and, and real quick, I just wanted to say a, a word about Clay County stuff and COVID stuff. There was a new mandate released on Friday, relaxing some of the social distancing requirements. You know, our leadership team met last Monday, five days before. Doesn't always align, that's okay. So our worship planning team and our leadership team will be in conversation to figure out how we're gonna respond. We've tried to keep pace with Clay County this entire time. And so we'll be uh, coming out with some communication around that. And I also just want to acknowledge that, you know, our West Side community and campus was busting down the doors at Dogwood in, in January of 2020 with us growing to a second service. And we joke, I, I, we joke that now we've got all the kids back in the house, right? And I just want to acknowledge that, um, you know, we've, there's been tons of disruptions and, and we just take it one step at a time. So we'll be putting our heads together and, and communicating on, on how we're going to respond. Uh, so with that being said, uh, are we ready to, to get into the word together? Amen. All right. William Goldman was an author and playwright and Oscar-winning screenwriter. He said this, the key to all story endings is to give the audience what it wants, but not in the way it expects. Have you ever been sad that a, maybe a favorite series on TV or a, a movie franchise has come to an end? That's, that's, that's emotional, isn't it? Uh, endings are really hard, and how a story ends can actually affect how we view the whole thing. And so I threw out to my, to my Facebook fam this week, hey, what's a, what's a finale ending that was just your absolute favorite? These were some of the, the most recurring answers. We had MASH, The Office, uh, The Big Bang Theory, and then a lot of people said a show I wasn't in the mood to pronounce. And so you can read that here on the screen. Uh, this is a Netflix show. There it is. Yep. So I said, I'm just going to screenshot it. And that way I won't get a bunch of emails. Okay. <laughs> a good ending ties everything together. And, and the best endings even kind of make you go back and watch how they were planning it all along. And when a show doesn't provide the audience what it wants, which really is resolution, People can react very poorly. Now, this is like a 14-year-old spoiler warning here, okay? So this show, uh, The Sopranos, uh, f- was the finale in June of 2007, and it famously ended with just a cut to black, just a, a blank screen. And people were so upset by it, they thought their cable went out. So people actually called their cable companies to be like, oh, what happened? It was right at the end of the show. And, and folks reacted a lot of different ways. How a story ends is crucial to the whole experience. There, there's a word in, in Christian history for studying how the story of God will end. It's called eschatology. It comes from the Greek word eschatos, and that means last. And so eschatology is the doctrine of last things. It's what do Christians believe about where all this is heading? It's the study of the climax of history, the eschaton. And this is part of what's prophesied in the book of Revelation, Now, I'm not one to use big words for their own sake, but I do believe that part of why we gather is to learn and grow together in faith, right? So what I hope we'll discover as we study God's word together is that your eschatology influences your theology. What you think about the end affects how you think about God and ultimately how you live your life. The question we'll look at as we consider uh, the final week in our long story short series is the revelation. How does this all end? And I've said this piece, I've copied and pasted this in my message for 12 weeks now. I'm going to say it one more time. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written over the course of, of 
uh, over 1,400 years by multiple authors across multiple languages, multiple countries and continents, multiple genres. The Bible contains history, prophecy, poetry, law, and letters. And despite all of those differences, it's, it's one unified story. The Bible is the story of God pursuing right relationship with people. And throughout this series, we've looked at Genesis to Revelation from the start to the finish. And today, we finish. We finish. We've also been providing an opportunity beyond worship to dig a little bit deeper into the scriptures. And so I'd love for you to join me on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. I'm going to have one of my old seminary professors, Dr. Brian Ebel. He'll always be Dr. Ebel to me. And we had a lot of Austin Powers. He gets that all the time. I'm sure he loves that. Dr. Ebel jokes. But uh, Dr. Ebel's going to be live on Facebook at 7 on our, on our church page. And we record those and send them out uh, in the newsletter as well. So we'd love for you to dig a little deeper into Revelation because we're not going to be able to, we're just, we're we're not even really qualifying and scratching the surface today. Uh, Revelation is the final book of the Bible and it's one of the most controversial. It's got the most prophecy in the second half of the Bible called the New Testament. And it's an apocalyptic vision given to John while exiled on the island of Patmos. I was really excited to find kind of the old school Bible Bible church font on this map. That, That made me happy. Uh, You can see Patmos here, kind of in between Greece and Asia Minor. That's the location of uh, where this vision took place as John was in exile. And as with many things in the Bible, folks have lots of different stances on on the facts, but uh, most scholars and certainly the tradition of the church holds that the author of Revelation, John, is the same John who was with Jesus, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of John. So John get, gets a lot of real estate in the New Testament. I think second, second only to uh, another author named Paul. So Revelation is one of the most infamous and difficult books of the Bible, and we're not going to be able to deal with, with all of it today. So if you're interested in studying more, I have a couple recommendations for you. The first is a Bible commentary from the Methodist tradition, and I like when stuff, just call it what it is. It's called Revelation. <laughs> I like that. That's by Richard Eckley. It's a great commentary on the book of Revelation because there's a lot to go over. And the second resource is called Across the Spectrum. This is by Gregory Boyd and Paul Eddy. I read this in seminary and there's a great chapter about eschatology, about what faithful Christians, kind of the spectrum of belief on how all this works. Um, So you, you can get some differing views on eschatology in Across the Spectrum. Revelation is a very tricky book to study because the images in it are very vivid and they're wild and fantastic. And they've been interpreted to mean almost an infinite amount of things. The original audience, and we'll bring back my favorite map here, the original audience were seven churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. And we read that in in verse 11 of chapter one. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there was an element, just like an Old Testament prophecy, that the author was speaking to what is to the people at the end of the first century. And one of the main messages of the book is for Christians to remain faithful and stand strong in the face of trial, to not abandon your first love of Jesus, as we read in chapter 2. Now, one way of summarizing Revelation is that chapter 1 kind of sets the scene for what the author has seen. Chapters 2 and 3 are what is now, and chapters 4 through 22 are what will take place later. And this uh, screenshot is from Chuck Swindoll's Insights on the Bible. So if you just type in 
Chuck Swindoll revelation, you'll get to a lot of good resources. It's the what's to come portion of revelation that becomes controversial. Throughout history, lots of people, even well-meaning people, have interpreted the prophecies of Revelation to mean lots of things. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that only 144,000 of the anointed will spend eternity in heaven. They get that from Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. There are currently more than 8 million Jehovah's Witnesses worldwide. I'm not trying to be mean. I mean, you could do the math, right? I mean, it doesn't, how's that work? The book of Revelation has also been employed to say that this or that current event is a sign of end times or somebody's cracked some type of code and they figured out the date of when all this is gonna take place. And so any of the, the world's gonna end prophecies have been wrong because if you'll humor me, go ahead and look to your left. Look to your right. We still here, right? So, so I think these actually can be damaging to the reputation of Christians when we're always trying to make these predictions and then uh, it's just a lot of fear-based stuff. I call this chronological snobbery. Every generation thinks they're in the end times because we just happen to be the latest generation there's been. And, and I, I had in my notes here, Adam, don't rant. Don't go into rant mode. So I'm gonna... I'm gonna take a deep breath and I'm gonna do this calmly. What I do not understand is how people who love the Bible and take it seriously and love Jesus do not listen to Jesus when he says about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. I don't get it. And, and for me, I don't get real caught up in a lot of the, some, every once in a while somebody will make a headline or something or some date rolls around or it's the Mayans or it's Y2K or some of us just had a little, you know, trauma from, from me saying that. But if, if Jesus says not even he knows, then why would I propose to know? I think the reason people try and make connections between our current reality and revelation is, is that we need to make sense of things. And I understand that. There's a concept called pareidolia, and it's the tendency to perceive a specific and often meaningful image in an ambiguous visual pattern. So, so think like the Rorschach inkblot test, like what do you see? What do you see in the inkblot, right? Or have you ever looked at a cloud and, and seen something in, oh, that looks like, oh, oh, it's a horse. Well, it's a cloud, it's a cloud. But, but we, we, we assign meaning to things because we try to make sense out of things in a way we can understand, in a way that, in things that are known to us. And so there's a lot of literature and interpretation and application of, of revelation out there because we want to make sense of what's going on around us and try to fit it into the vivid but vague imagery we find in this last book of the Bible. One of the main themes of revelation is staying strong in times of trial and just like good stories, their ending affects your view of the whole thing. For some folks, they believe that the worse things get on earth, the better, because Jesus must be closer to coming back. Now again, I'm not going to rant, but I can't imagine seeing all this junk going on in the world and thinking it's good news. 
I don't understand. But for some folks, that's how they feel because your eschatology influences your theology. What you believe about the destination can very much inform the path you see set before you. So what does Revelation say about the eschaton, the end of all things? How does the story of God conclude? Well, in Genesis, we began with creation, and in Revelation, we end with recreation. We started in paradise and end in paradise. God created everything and called it good, and God ends with the redemption of this good creation, merging heaven and earth. So we'll be reading from Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Jerusalem had been the holy capital for the people of Israel for generations. And this verse contains a reference to Isaiah 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The formal things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. To this day, Jerusalem remains a contested piece of geography. Whereas the temple in Jerusalem was a holy place that only a few could enter, now God's presence will reside in a new Jerusalem and the atmosphere will be like a joyous wedding. Verse three says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So in the beginning of the Bible, we're in a garden and at the end of the Bible, we're in a city. The presence of God separated by sin will be restored and people will experience the goodness of God's presence directly. Now, what comes next is an absolute Hall of Fame Bible verse. Um, there's not a lot of magic words as a pastor or as, as, as you, I'm sure, have encountered people who are grieving. There's not a lot to say a lot of times. You say most of what you need to say just by showing up. But what we're going to read comes pretty close. My guess is a lot of us have, have heard this read at a funeral and for good reason. I read this at my own father's funeral. This is Revelation 21. This is some words that people of faith have hung our hats on. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So for weeks we've said that the Bible is God's pursuit of being in right relationship with people. In Revelation 21, we see that relationship restored. And, and so for me, that's, that's a key to, to this interpretation. That's the key to eschatology, restoration. Restoration of life, restoration of creation, restoration of our relationship with God, restoration from all the death and mourning and crying and pain that we've experienced. And we're told that these words are trustworthy and true. I don't know about you, I need these words to be true. I'm banking on it. I'm depending on it. The old order of things, all our world's brokenness, I don't believe they bring this day closer. The old order of things will be replaced on this day. So here's my eschatology. In the end, all things are restored to the goodness that God intended. That restoration began with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And it has been set into motion and we are to wait for and work towards its completion. I don't need any other description of heaven beyond being in God's presence with no more death or crying or mourning or pain. Like, sign me up. Is there an Eventbrite link I can click on? Help me, I, how do, <laughs> I'm in on that. 
In the end, what God restores isn't just our human souls as individuals. In the end, God's restoration isn't just about our individual destiny. It's about the destiny of everything. God restores earth by making it new, by joining it with heaven. Christianity is not about escaping this world. God's vision is ultimately about restoring it. So Revelation 21 for me is is a gut check type of chapter. Do we believe these words are trustworthy and true? If so, our beliefs about how the story ends, our eschatology, should influence what we believe about God, our theology. And hopefully our theology affects how we live our lives and behave every day. Friends, when we have confidence in how the story ends, we can trust God for how everything else is unfolding. Since the beginning, God has been in pursuit of people to be in right relationship with him. He made promises to Abraham, to the people of Israel, and to all who believe in his name. Long story short, God made creation and called it good. People chose their own way. And God is restoring all things through Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose and will come again. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the chance to be together and to hear from your word. God, help us be people who, who don't just gather facts uh, around your scriptures or, or who, who amass knowledge as preparing for some type of heavenly trivia contest, but help us grow in our knowledge of the faith for the sake of living in such a way that honors you, that we could be embodying this new creation that you've already set into motion That we, we, we cling to this message of hope that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And that in the end, you will set all things right, that you will restore everything that has been broken, and that you will wipe every tear from our eye. God, in the meantime, we, we give that pain and that anxiety and, and all of our struggle, we lift that up to you in this moment and strengthen us so that we can stand strong in the face of trial and that we might never forget you, our first love. Amen.